Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. Awesome. So let's get into this today. How many know tomorrow's Valentine's Day? Yeah. Are you excited about that, bud? You don't have a Valentine? That's okay. You, you don't need a Valentine for a long time. You know, Valentine's Day is one of those days... Uh, my, my wife is actually, I don't know if, if she says it sarcastically or I've actually, I've actually brainwashed her in this idea, but, but I've said this for 20 some years that Valentine's day was something that the greeting card industry uses to make more money or the flower ladies don't give me dirty looks. I'm just saying, right. That's what I feel like. I'm like, why every day should be special. You're my Valentine every day. And so, you know, I often think about where did this come from? And so we have this, this day, this one day that we put aside where we celebrate romance and love and, and kissy face and all this stuff, right? It's, it's origins though, uh, run pretty deep and, and pretty far back in history you know, we have this celebration of candy and flowers and, and things like that, but you know that it actually began uh, pretty dark and pretty bloody. Whoa. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. I'm, you're with me, man. I love that. Now, it's a bit confusing, but if you actually look at the history, and no one has really pinpointed the exact origin of this holiday, but one good place to start is ancient Rome. How many are familiar with ancient Rome? If you read your Bible, you see ancient Rome you know, occupying uh, Jewish territory and really the whole world. I mean, they were the superpower of the time. But from February 13th to February 15th, the Romans celebrated the Feast of Lupercalia. Say Lupercalia. Say that five times really fast. This is what they did during this sacrifice. They would actually sacrifice, the men, I should say, would sacrifice a goat and a dog. Now, I know we're like, they killed Fido? But you have to understand something, that sacrificing animals was just normal in this time. Is it barbaric to us? Sure. But in this time, and even as believers, we read and we think that the Jews had this special thing that they would do with sacrifices, but every culture of that time would offer sacrifices. And in fact, I believe that God worked within all that they knew at the time, sacrifice, and he used that system to lead up to the ultimate final sacrifice of Jesus to say, you don't have to do this anymore. I'm okay with you. Does that make sense? But in this time, it seems barbaric to us. In this time, it was normal. But get this, the men would sacrifice a goat and a dog, and then they would whip women with the hides of the animals that they had just slain. Wow. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> now, young women would actually line up for the men to hit them, historians say, with the carcasses or the skins of these animals they had just slain because they believed that it would make them more fertile. Happy Valentine's Day. So if you're passing the house and you see a guy walking in with a goat and a dog, Run. This guy's taking a literal. But, but I, I just want us to understand that, you know, things, things come from somewhere. You know, again, it wasn't, the, obviously it wasn't the greeting card industry. 
Now, another thing we can look to, historians have said that um, the ancient Romans actually may be responsible for the name of this modern day of love because in the third century, Emperor Claudius II had actually executed two men, both named Valentine, on February 14th, different years. And the Catholic Church actually, for years, celebrated and honored their martyrdom uh, with the celebration of St. Valentine's Day. And that's really where we get this idea. Doesn't that make you just want to go get some reservations to a beautiful restaurant and take your wife out, guys, for a meal? All right, bring it down. But doesn't it, though? It's just like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that's where Valentine's Day came from? It's pretty crazy history, right? But before we get too judgy, I want us to think about in recent history, have we done or have we uh, maybe believed some pretty crazy stuff ourselves? All it takes is just listening in at the break room, at the water cooler, taking a little cruise through social media, and people believe all kinds of wacky stuff, don't they? And we think, whoa, that's wacky, but then they think what we believe is really wacky too. Here's the thing is, all through the history of mankind, we have had some pretty crazy beliefs, haven't we? But do you know what I see through all of this history and through all of these stories? I see something so much deeper, something that human beings have always done and they continue to do. We can take the greatest tragedies and find love within them. You even think of uh, poems and, and plays, the Shakespeare plays. There, there's, always, there's always love somehow that, that comes from without or within, I should say, and also maybe even stems or moves the tragedy along. But we have this, this process where we love to find love within even tragedy in life. There, there's something about love, isn't there? I believe it's because love matters. Say love matters. Our entire world revolves around the importance of love. I mean, think about this. We have songs about it. Uh, We have movies that try and portray it. We have books that try to describe it. We have websites that try to help people find it. It consumes us. We, We desire it, and we desire someone to give our love to. You know, we even have love languages. Anyone familiar with this? In fact, just this past week, it's been a while, and uh, my, my wife is like, I, I just, she had our kids each take the love language test, and then she took it again, and then I ended up taking it. And isn't it crazy how polar opposite we can be in our languages of love? I mean, it's just wild. I mean, my wife and I are completely opposite. It, and here's what they say about it. Usually we love people according to our own love language. So maybe your love language is uh, getting gifts. Well, then you give gifts. Maybe your love language is physical touch, and so you're more touchy-feely. Maybe maybe your gift is words of affirmation. That's my top one. It's like, tell me how good I am. Tell me I'm okay. I don't know why. That's just my love language. And so then I find that I usually love people by words of affirmation. But think about this. If my love language is words of affirmation, and theirs is physical touch... I can say all the great words in the world, but to them, they don't feel loved. And I've heard it described like this. It's like speaking Chinese to someone who only knows English for years and years and years and not understanding why they don't get it. 
it's because there's different languages. And so it's kind of been, we've had fun with this, haven't we? You know, I've on purpose with your, one of your top being physical touch, just being more touchy-feely and close, more than I normally, being aware of that. And it's funny, like, even this morning, I, I came up and just gave you a, a gentle kiss and that, and I walked out, she goes, honey, you're so awesome. I'm like, all right. So, you know, we're having fun with it. Sometimes you have to be reminded of the different love languages because we all have a different language. But it almost seems, hmm, it almost seems as if we're built for love. And I would go as far as to say this, that we're built from love. The very center of who you are as a creation, as a human being, was built from love. I mean, think about this. The creator of the planet, I'm talking to believers here, right? And so however you see God, the creator, most of us universally as Christians or believers or followers of Jesus would say that God is love. He doesn't just love. She doesn't just love. God doesn't just love. God is love. And I think that's interesting too because Sometimes, if we're not careful, we can separate the love from the character or the characteristics of God, right? So whether God becomes angry about something or um, disciplines or these different attributes of God and characteristics, we have to remember that all those come from love, right? So for me, if I truly love my children, I'm not out to get them. But I will become angry when someone or something tries to hurt them. Does that make sense? I'm not going to punish them because someone tricked them or fooled them or took advantage of them. I'm angry with the person or the thing that did that. Does that make sense? Just a little side, side note. So I think it's important that we see that the creator of this planet, he is love. God is love. So it would make sense that love is part of our existence. So much so that many have made love their God rather than the God who is love. I like to say this, love personified. That's the thing I see about the life of Jesus. Sometimes it just brings me to tears when I see how compassionate Jesus was for humanity to the point where he laid down his life for humanity. The way that he treated people, he didn't have labels. In fact, he tried to remove labels. He tried to help people see themselves the way that he saw them, the way that God saw people. Love personified. See, what happens is we've tried to build a world on a foundation of love, but sometimes we've excluded the creator of love, God himself. And so we're looking for maybe a feeling or, and we know this, that love's a decision, right? I love what Pete said this morning. He said, I've just decided that I'm going to love everybody. How many know that's a decision? It's not always a feeling. Let's, let's be honest. I mean, there's times even with our own family, where we have to decide we're going to walk in love. We're going to love that person. What they're saying, what they're doing right now, it's not right. I feel taken advantage of. I, I feel like my voice isn't being heard. Anyone been there before? But see, we have to make this decision to love. 
And what I found is once you make the decisions, sometimes it takes a while, but eventually the feelings come along. If you're waiting for a feeling, good luck. Because love isn't a feeling, it's a decision. But again, we've tried to build a world on a foundation of love, but excluded the creator of love. That's God himself. Think about this. How we respond to God, how we respond to others, how we respond to circumstances in life, and even how we see ourselves. Think about this. It all hinges on love or the absence of love in our life. I said this earlier that I believe we're constantly connected to the life force whom we call God or the divine. That makes me happy. It's not based on what I do or don't do. But the more that I awaken to this connection, the more that I begin to live out my true identity, who I really am. I know we talk about this every single week, but I don't think we always get it. I don't think we always understand it. I think there's old habits and old ideas and things that try to resurface sometimes. That just shows me that Holy Spirit needs to work on some areas in our life and bring healing to those areas. Not for shame, but to heal us. But think about this. Even as believers, those who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I follow Christ, we can sometimes fall for the idea that our love is something we produce through self-effort. I lived a lot of my Christian life, my following Jesus in this way. You know, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, he describes what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And I believe it's something that each and every single one of us have. I believe it's already in seed form for some of us. Others, it's grown uh, maybe to... uh, you know, a maturity, a level, but, but I believe that the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I believe that those things are exactly that fruit of the spirit. It's something that that spirit bears within you that, in fact, I, I wonder often when I read this portion of scripture in Galatians, I wonder if Paul heard the story that Jesus told, the parable about the vine and the branches. Jesus said, I am the vine, God is the vine dresser, and you are the branches. How many know what part of the vine bears fruit? Anyone? The branch. Say, I'm a branch. Say, I get to bear fruit. But how many know this? You cannot bear fruit without the vine, without the vine dresser. This tells me something. It's not up to me to produce the fruit. The fruit is produced by simply existing and being connected to divine. I guess see how I did that? So if that's the truth, then maybe even this love thing, which is part of, it's a wedge of the fruit of spirit, maybe it's not so much up to me, It's up to me to stay connected and allow spirit to bear fruit within and then eventually without. And what I always say, fruit is meant to be enjoyed. When you go to an apple orchard in the fall and you pick, man, I'm telling you, aren't those apples amazing, babe? When you make your homemade apple pie and you go to the, the, um, I almost said the vineyard, that's after. But 
when you go to the orchard and you get those, what ones do you use? The apples, Northern Spies. Oh man, so good. But she makes his apple pies. It's just amazing. It, there's something about the flavor. There's just the smell when you're in the orchard. It's so much different than just walking through Meyer or Walmart and grabbing something off the shelf. They have those huge rooms with fresh picked apples. It's so amazing, isn't it? You know that fruit was meant for you and I to enjoy? Which tells me something again about the fruit that we bear. It's meant for others to enjoy. So sure, I mean, should people experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control through you? Absolutely. But we have to be careful that we're not trying to produce fruit on our own. Because when we do, what happens when we take on this attitude toward life's journey? Then we feel like we have to produce the fruit through self-effort. And we usually end up asking this question. This is a big question today that I want to ask and I want us to think about. Here it is. How much do you love God? How much do you love God? We've probably been asked this question before. We probably have at least thought or asked ourselves this question. Let's make it personal. How much do I love God? Does anyone ever ask yourself that question? You're going through life and you look at maybe your choices, you look at your lack of good choices, and you think, man, do I really love God? How much do I love God? Well, it's an important question, but I think the answer um, depends on a lot of different variables. Because for a lot of us, we ask questions before we answer that question, like, well, how have I acted lately? Have I sinned recently? Have I been living uprightly? How much devotional time have I put in? How much prayer time have I put in? How many times have I showed up to church on Sundays? How many times have I volunteered to work in a department at the church? All valid things. I'm not putting those things down. I think it's great to say, wow, am I actually doing things for the kingdom? Am I actually working for the kingdom? But again, it should be out of inspiration, not obligation, right? And so there's this fine line that we have to toe and be careful of. Because if we're not careful, we start to ask questions like, how much do I love God? And we start to look at what we've done. We, we often look at our recent performance or our effort as a gauge to our love toward God. Has anyone ever done this before? I used to a lot in my early days as a follower of Jesus. It's a vicious cycle. It never ends. And here's what I found. I could be having a great week. Like I feel really Christian-y. I don't know if that's a word or not, but like I've been talking to God and, and I've been reading my Bible and I've been checking off the list and man, I showed up to church like three times this month and things are going really well. And there's always that person, come on, always that person that walks into the room and you're like, oh, they're more spiritual than I am. And so we do this comparison game. I hate the comparison game. Let me say this. This is a bold statement. God hates the comparison game. Because I see this through the life of Jesus. You know, Jesus never used, I mean, he's our example, but he never said, hey, why can't you be more like me? I've never once in the gospel seen Jesus say, why don't you be more like me? Now, we understand that he's our example and the perfect example, and I want to be more like Jesus. But it's interesting that Jesus didn't ever say, hey, why don't you just be a little bit more like me? I'm getting really sick and tired of this, man. Am I going to have to die for you guys? That was never the attitude of Jesus. 
And so we fall into this vicious cycle of looking at our recent performance, looking at our own self-effort. We make that the gauge of whether we love God enough or not. And so again, how much do I love God? How much do you love God? I, I believe that's a very honorable question, but what if it were backwards? What if we're asking the wrong question? What if it wasn't about that? What if there was a different way to approach our love walk toward God? I want to just take a moment this morning, and I want to look at an example in the Bible, starting in the Gospel of John. John chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 21. This is very near to the crucifixion of Jesus. He's sitting around with his 12. He's having this, what we call the last meal, the last supper with them. But look what he says. It said that he became troubled in spirit, and he testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Look at this. The disciples began to look at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. I mean, there were 12 guys there, right? It says there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. I want us to, to clue in on this one statement. I'm going to read it again. There was reclining on the bosom of Jesus, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Look at this. So Simon Peter, how many are familiar with Peter? He gestured to this man and he said to him, tell us of whom it is of whom he is speaking. This man leans back on Jesus' bosom. Look what he says, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, I want us to understand something here about this picture. Because it's so, it's so easy to read this story and go, okay, and we kind of read over the surface. We just skim over the surface of the story. But there's a lot going on, and we have to understand some culture here. First of all, in Jewish culture at this time, they would eat at these low tables while reclining on pillows. I think we need to bring a little of that back. How about you? Guys, all the ladies are like, no, you're going to sit at the table up straight with a napkin in your lap and you're going to eat, right? But listen, how much, come on, today's Super Bowl Sunday, right? I have to say it at least once, go Stafford, but I got to say it at least once. We're going to sit around usually the living room some of you reclining against maybe the side of the couch on the floor and we'll be having a meal, right? Wings and pizza and whatever else, watching the game together, enjoying life together. Those are some of the best moments in life, aren't they? It's when you're together as a family. But I love this idea. In Jewish culture, they would actually eat at these low tables while reclining on pillows. Now, it says that there was a disciple who was leaning into the bosom of Jesus. The word bosom means chest. So he's literally just leaning back on Jesus, just chilling, relaxing. Now, let me say this. There's not a whole lot of guys that lean back into my bosom or chest. Maybe, maybe my sons, that's not awkward. But, you know, so this could feel a little bit awkward, right? But we didn't understand something. In this time, it was different. There was such a connection. And we were talking about this this morning as well, Aaron, about, you know, in, in the days of the early church, when it even came to church membership, people would hear the gospel, they would believe, and they would just connect together. I believe because of their Jewish roots, many of them, they already had this sense of family, community, and connection. It's something that we've lost, I believe, the art of connection in so many years, but I believe that's part of really how the body works. The body only works right if it's connected, right? 
I mean, just break your femur and you'll find out really quickly that that disconnection is not working well for you, right? And so it's important that we see that. But I want us to understand in this time, in this culture, that they're sitting around, they're reclining on these pillows, this low table where the food was. This one disciple is leaning into the chest of Jesus. And I believe that this was a symbol of care, of fellowship, of connection, of intimacy. Now, we know that the disciple whom Jesus loved is the actual disciple that the gospel is named after, and that's John, the disciple John, right? And so he's reclining on the chest of Jesus. I think it is interesting that he refers to himself like five times in his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I don't, I don't believe this is out of arrogance at all. In fact, I believe that John, out of all 12 disciples, began to really get a grasp on the love of God. He understood the connection. He understood the, the relationship that man can have and does have, but has to become aware of it with the divine. And so we see that even in the life of John, I mean, I mean he accomplished so much. And, and so, did, so did Peter. We're going to talk about Peter for a minute. I, I don't want to, you know, throw him out with the bathwater. But John had this connection to Jesus, and I would believe even a connection to God. And so if you're looking at this picture, you have John the Apostle leaning into the chest of Jesus. And yet we have Peter here who's sitting near Jesus but wasn't leaning against him. In fact, he asked John, who was leaning on the chest of Jesus, I I kind of like to imagine this. He's laying there and he's like, yo, John, John. So John leans up, he's like, what's up, Pete? Maybe you're sitting right next to him. And he's like, "Um, ask him who he's talking about. So John's like, okay. And he leans back. He says, so who is it you're speaking of? And then Jesus says it. Think about this. John asked the question. Peter didn't even feel like he could address Jesus with the question. Are you seeing what's going on here? There was a closeness between Jesus and John. And I don't believe it was Jesus saying, John's my favorite. I believe that all of us, different love languages, different levels, different levels, I should say, of revelation, understanding, we get to this place where we go, wow, I am connected to the divine in, by, and through love. This is who I am. And so we see, I believe, these two different men. I believe God, through scripture here, is telling us something by the physical postures and reactions of these two men. We have one man leaning on the chest of Jesus, another man who's close, he's near, he's at the table, but yet he has to ask John to ask Jesus a question. He himself couldn't even ask the question. So let's look at these two men for just a few moments before we close today, uh, Peter and John. I want to look at two separate interactions that these men have with Christ near the time of his crucifixion. I believe that they're distinct reactions the differences in how they respond and react to Jesus are how they see their personal relationship with him. And I believe it reflects how loved they believe they are by Jesus. How many know Jesus loves us all the same? No respecter of person, right? And so we know this now, even though sometimes we struggle with this idea because we see someone else, we're thinking, man, God must love them more. They live such a better life than I do. Look at the difference between these two men. I'm going to pick this up in Mark chapter 14. Uh, this interaction that Jesus has with the apostle Peter. Look at this, starting with verse 27. And Jesus said to them, 
you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, who said to him? Peter, look at this. Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Now, before we start, you know, taking some, some punches and jabs at Pete, I believe he meant what he said. I believe he truly was like, God, I'm not going anywhere. Jesus, I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. I'm with you. And Jesus said to him, look at this response. Truly, I say to you, speaking to Peter directly, that this very night, say very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Not once, not twice, but thrice. Three times of denial. But Peter kept saying insistently, look at his answer, even if I have to die with you, I will not, what, deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. I think they joined into it. Well, yeah, yeah, Peter, we're with you, man. We're never going to leave Jesus. Well, we would never deny Jesus. How many know how the story goes? That Jesus hit the nail on the head or what? It says that Peter denied Jesus three times and the third time with cursing and swearing. He was a sailor, makes sense. He wanted to really make sure that people knew he wasn't connected, why he was afraid, he was scared. He didn't see the truth. He didn't understand what was going on. Everyone fled that night with the crucifixion but one. Let's pick up in John chapter 19 and look at the interaction Jesus has with John, starting with verse 25. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus, now he's hanging on the cross, were who? His mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the what? Disciple whom he loved, standing nearby. Who was that? John. Think about this. Everyone else fled. Everyone else left. Everyone else abandoned Jesus in what would probably be his worst experience as a human being. But there was one standing nearby. Who was it again? John. Now look at this. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. That, that word could be better translated ma'am. It was a very respectful term. It was like, hey, woman. No, it was ma'am. It was very respectful. He says, ma'am, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. This is how close the relationship with, with Jesus was. It wasn't that, it wasn't only that he stayed there, that he didn't flee, he didn't abandon Jesus, he was there. Jesus trusted this man enough to say, you now take over as her son. That's relational. That's understanding relationship, isn't it? Look at this. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Come on, somebody. But when we think about this picture of the crucifixion and Jesus on the cross, Peter in particular is noticeably absent. He's not there at the foot of the cross. Right After betraying Jesus for the third time in the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, it actually says that he went out and wept bitterly. Now, I want us to think about this because 
I think I'd do the same thing. Like, oh, I screwed up. I promised Jesus, you know, like I just ruined it. I thought I was a promise keeper. I promised Jesus that I would do all this. And then when, when the opportunity arises, I totally do the thing I said I wouldn't do. And so I, I want us to, you know, I, I don't, again, I don't want to throw Peter out. I mean, think about Peter gave up everything for Jesus. Peter gave up the family business. Maybe a pretty successful fishing enterprise to follow Jesus. We've heard this story, right? He he laid down everything and followed Jesus and said, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. This is my shepherd. This is my rabbi. This is the one I will follow. So when his rabbi dies and he's not understanding what this means and he's not connecting prophecy yet, what does he do? He runs away. He denies. In fact, Think about this. While John is at the foot of the cross, I believe having a better revelation, a more mature love relationship with Jesus, Peter is out somewhere fixated on his failures. He didn't have to be. And here's a really important side note. The word Peter means stone. And the name John means God is gracious. See, I don't think there's any accident that these stories are being told to us. Just like I don't believe it was an accident that we see the physical postures of two men in different places, we're also seeing that even their names have significance. You have Peter Stone. We could compare that to the law on cold tablets of stone. Whereas you have John, God is gracious, the grace of God, it's the law of love that's written on our heart. It's the spirit of life. It's the perfect law of freedom that's been sown into our hearts. It's two different ways of viewing the world and viewing ourselves. It's two different ways of living life. One according to hard, cold law and the other to God's warm, rich grace. And we can see it playing out in their lives. Their responses to Jesus, their relationship with Jesus. Listen, both John and Peter loved Jesus and wanted to do what was right. I said it before that Peter gave up everything. We can't discount Peter because, listen, he goes on to eventually come back around. And what's cool is when Jesus sees him during that 40 days after the resurrection that he's explaining Scripture and how it's all connected. Do you realize that Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? In order to negate the three denials, man, Jesus is so good. That moves me. Because no matter what you've done, denied, didn't do, didn't follow through on, Jesus is saying, but do you love me? I believe what he's saying is, do you see the connection we have? I haven't gone anywhere. Don't give up on yourself. I haven't given up on you. And we see that Peter has this transformation from within in these conversations over the course of 40 days before the ascension of Jesus. And he goes on to preach the gospel boldly to learn and understand that it's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles as well. And being open to change and being open to seeing things different and even being open, get this, to dying for the cause of Christ. 
became a martyr. Which brings me to another point. It's very interesting to me that the only disciple who doesn't die or wasn't martyred was John. The one who understood loving relationship. I don't know if that correlates or how that works. In fact, it says they couldn't kill him. <laughs> they couldn't kill him. And all they could do is they could exile him to an island. And while on the island, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes some, some amazing letters in Scripture and understanding and revelation of who God is. Isn't that cool? So we have these two men. We have Peter and we have John. Why is it that John's remembered for being at the cross and Peter was remembered for denying Jesus publicly? I think it's because Peter is active. He's working. He's striving. See, that's what happens in life when someone trusts in him or herself to fulfill God's commandments. It's a life, I believe, that's lived by stone, or we could say by the law. We work it out. We make it happen. It's all about performance. It's about self-effort. It's about action. It's about proving ourselves. Now, again, does that mean we aren't to do anything? Well, of course we do. There's work to do in the kingdom of God. But again, is it out of inspiration or obligation? Is it by the letter of law or is it by the letter of love? There's a big difference in, in why we do and how we do things in life, depending on what paradigm we live out of. So let me ask you this. We have Peter, who is all about performance. He's trying to make it happen. He's working really hard. He's trying to prove himself to Jesus. But then we have... Let me ask you this question. Who was at the foot of the cross at the crucifixion? Just John. I believe John got it. And Peter was absent. Why? Because he was obsessing over his failures, over his denial of Christ. And I believe this, that Peter is like us in many ways, especially before we begin to understand the love and grace of God. Before we really begin to mature in the love of God, we rely on our own abilities to figure things out, to bravely push through with our own self-effort and our own strength. But that's not kingdom, is it? You know what? I want to be more like John. Not that I dislike Peter. I think Peter's awesome. He really is. And I love that scripture doesn't candy coat stuff. I mean, they could have... Think about this. The apostles are writing these things about themselves. If there's anything that we know about history is that history is usually written by the winners. And the winners have this tendency to clean some stuff up and make it look really good, right? I mean, that's just, that's just how history is written. That's what I love about the Bible is it's written in a way that doesn't candy coat stuff. It just gives us everything. It shows the good, the bad, the ugly. You know what that does for me? It makes me realize that, wow, I'm human just like they are. I have good days. I have bad days. I have ugly days. I have pretty days. I have days where I make the right decisions. I have days where I don't make the right decisions. In fact, I can make some really bad decisions. Anyone here with me? That's the beauty of scripture to me. But in the end, you see how God works all these things together for good. And all it takes is this love relationship, believing that God exists, that he's there with you, that there's a connection. And we see that eventually the life of Peter becomes beautiful and he even becomes a martyr for the cause of Christ. But I know for me, as I look at this, I want to be more like John. 
See, John realized that, you know, frantic human effort was not the answer. But that resting in Jesus' love, that great love for us, was paramount. It was above all things. We can see that from his posture at the Last Supper. I don't believe this is the first time this happened. I believe this was just a normal occurrence. Like, where's Jesus sitting? Cool. I'm leaning back into this. Teach me, Master. I want to know more. I want to understand more. But there was this connection that John understood. There's something about John's relationship with Jesus that went deeper than his promises and his performance. It was love. I believe he began to understand love. Pastor Judah Smith made this comment. He says this, somewhere along the line, if the object of our love ignores us or rejects us long enough, our love turns to indifference or even hate. But not God. Say, but not God. Look at this. He is obsessed with us, and nothing we can do will ever change that. There's a lot of believers that think God's mind is changed based on your actions. How powerful do we think we are? You can't change God's mind. You can't change the family that you're in. I mean, think about physical families here on this earth. If you're born by blood into a family, you can move halfway around the world, you can change your name, but the blood doesn't lie. You're still a part of that family. You can pretend, you can live differently, you can be opposite of what that family represents, but you're still part of that family at the core. How much more the family of God? How strong is that? I want to wrap up with a couple of scriptures. Here's John again in 1 John 4.10. He says this, this is the kind of love that we are talking about. What, John? Tell us. I know that you have this great understanding of the love of God. You understand the connection. What are you talking about? Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage that, we've done, that they've done to our relationship with God. And this is probably one of my all-time favorite verses. I actually have this verse up in my office. Every time I walk in, I get to read it. 1 John 4, 19. We love. Say, we love. Your ability to love yourself, others, and God. Your ability to, love, to walk a life of love, it's because he first loved us. Say, hallelujah. Takes the pressure off. Because if we get in the Peter mode, we think I've got to prove myself in order to love God enough and prove that I can love enough. And John says, no, 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 no. We love the very, the very, what's the word I'm looking for? The very reason and the way that we can love, the how that we can love is because he first loved us. It all circles around to the source. It all circles around to your connection to the divine. It's important to understand this because the Jesus message sometimes gets so convoluted, it gets so twisted around. And I believe that the Jesus message, the gospel, is first and foremost an announcement of who you are. 
I believe Jesus came to this earth to show you who you are and whose you are. It's all about your identity. It's about the new word that has been spoken about you. It's about the love that has always been yours. It didn't just start when Jesus showed up to the planet. Jesus was showing you what always was, what always has been. That's why I love when the psalmist talks about just the care and the compassion. And even in, in your mother's womb, you were formed by God with purpose and with love. This goes way beyond, you know, one day I came to church and I heard a message and I prayed a prayer. No, this is God has always, always, always loved you. It's always been there. So awaken to the gospel. Awaken to this message. Because the thing is, if you start with instructions and commands then people might be mistaken into thinking that God loves us because of what we do or how religious or how moral or how good or upright that we are. Let me say something. That is not the gospel. The gospel is the announcement of who God says you are. You're a, you're a dearly loved child of God. That's who you are. Not because of how great you are, but because God has all kinds of kids, and guess what? You're one of them. And I understand that life's not easy at times. At times, problems present themselves. We go through issues in life, right? We face stuff that's real. It's in our face. I understand that. And for most of us, our tendency in these times is to jump up and get to work. We try to fix things. We try to clean things up. We try to do better or do more and make things happen. And all along, we're forgetting that we need to be led by the love of God in our lives. Just like the Apostle John, we need to filter everything through God's love for us. Whatever the trial, whatever the temptation, whatever bad report, whatever circumstance comes our way, first filter that situation through God's love for you. It's not easy, but it's essential in our walk with God. And let his love lead you to the solution. Think about that the same love that leads us to salvation is the same love that keeps us in and through this life. Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And then John says, we know, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's a continual cycle of loving others at our own expense benefiting others at our expense. So think about that. Our entire concept and understanding of real love is because of God's example of love to us. What does that look like? We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 what love is, what love looks like, and many times what we do is we believe that that's our list of what we should do. That's my punch list of how life should look. I actually started reading that portion of scripture and every time it says love, I just put God in there. And I realized that God is love. What is God? Check out this video. Check out this video.
that's who God is. I love how it ends, never fails. Will you stand with me? Say this with me, the love of God never fails. God is love, so he never fails me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you are the very essence of love, love personified. I pray this morning that as we heard these words and we looked at these two different men and your interactions with them, that maybe we're just trying to be honest with ourselves and say, who am I? Am I a Peter or am I John? Where am I in this walk? I believe that we all, as we continue through this journey with you, that you're bringing us to this place where we can be where John was, entrusting this loving relationship and being comfortable in this loving relationship. I pray for each and every person who's here this morning or watching online. I know, Holy Spirit, that you're moving in our hearts. You're always reminding us of our right standing. You're always reminding us of our rightful place as beloved children of God. I pray that we would believe that, that we would receive that, and that in turn we would walk out who we are according to our true identity in you. We thank you that you're always ministering to us. We welcome healing in our lives. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Take a deep breath. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.